God bless and greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. We're in the Word of the Lord, a study of Thessalonians. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 we read, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. The adversity that men are willing to go through to preach the gospel is a testimony to the sincerity of their faith. When also tribulation and persecution ariseth for the word's sake, they will not, like impostors, abandon faith. Thus, though Paul and his companions had suffered and were shamefully treated at Philippi, this did not prohibit them from continuing to hold forth the word of the Lord boldly. The power of Christ's nature within the Lord's people also is far greater than all the powers of darkness in this world. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, we read, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. It is important that Christians are reminded of this universal reality, that greater is he that is in them than he that is in the world, that it is not by their own power and strength that they overcome, but only because of who lives in them. Barnes on this verse, the Son of God who stands at the head of that interest in which you are embarked and who aids you by the mighty communications of his spirit, is infinitely too strong for Satan, the great head of the apostasy, and for all his confederates. Thus, the issue of the divine government will be that truth and virtue shall be finally victorious over error and wickedness, because God, the patron of truth and virtue, possesseth far greater power and wisdom than the evil spirits who promote error and wickedness, end quote. The devil will stoop to any means possible to discourage saints from pursuing God or from holding forth his word. Satan has no rules nor etiquette that he abides by, and we should never consider that his methods will be anything less than harsh and unfair. Yet for all the maliciousness in his heart, and all the influence he has over the children of disobedience, Christ's power, because he lives in his people, is greater. This is why saints will prevail, even if their own fleshly strength is weak and feeble. Ultimately, it is not by any strength of our own that we who are called by Christ overcome, but only because of he who lives within us. And because Christ is greater than Satan his people will overcome Satan's attacks. The greatest spiritual power always prevails, and Jesus Christ is the greatest power in the world today. Martin Luther once said in his third stanza of A Mighty Fortress is Our God, And though this world, with devils filled, should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. End quote. If ever men are tempted to believe that Christ's power is less than Satan's, then let them consider that no devil nor evil spirit 
ever cast out Jesus, but only he them. Even as in the spiritual realm, there is but one king. When the Lord Jesus was risen from the dead, he received from God absolute authority, both in heaven and hell. This is experientially proven by when through his name, demons depart and by his name, sinners are saved. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And because of Christ's own power, his people will prevail. Thus, all victory for the people of God can be traced to he who lives within them, the Lord Jesus Christ. In respect to Jesus' current position in God's creation, the book of Revelation reveals this. And in Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, we read, And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on this, his name written on his vesture and on his thigh was written partly on the vesture, partly on the thigh itself. At the part where in an equestrian figure, the road drops from the thigh. The thigh symbolizes Christ's humanity as having come after the flesh from the loins of David and now appearing as the glorified son of man. On the other hand, his incommutable divine name, which no man knew, is on his head. Revelation 19.12. Continuing with this, King of Kings. The beast being in attempted usurpation, a king of kings, the ten kings delivering their kingdom to him, end quote. When men ponder the events recorded in the book of Revelation and are tempted to become fearful of the power of both the dragon and the beast or the ungodly worldly governments which shall align themselves with them, they need to remember this, that he who died on the cross and was raised by God to sit at God's right hand is vastly greater than all who oppose him. The power of the Christian therefore lies not in the strength of himself, but in the divine authority given to the Son. Benson on 1 John 4, 4. Because greater is he that is in you, namely the Spirit of Christ, than he, the Spirit of Antichrist, that is in the world. The Son of God, who stands at the head of that interest in which you are embarked, and who aids you by the mighty communications of his spirit, is infinitely too strong for Satan, the great head of apostasy, and for all his confederates, end quote. It is thus not because of a Christian's flesh or natural strength that he is made to overcome, but rather because both the Father and the Son now abide in him. John fourteen twenty three. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Because Christ is supreme and has been given divine power over all things by God, the saved are therefore made more than conquerors through him, Romans 8, 37. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. When this is properly understood, saints will realize that all victory lies in the fact that Christ is supreme and has himself conquered all.
And though the Holy Spirit may seem to be at times only a small part in the heart of the Christian, because God and Christ are the Holy Spirit, the Lord's people shall be made to be more than conquerors. This is why not even an abundance of evil men could dissuade nor prohibit the apostles from fulfilling their divine commission. Jesus Christ had appointed them as leaders of his own church, and nothing nor anyone inferior to him could cause them to desert their calling. True spiritual boldness, therefore, does not lie in the strength of human will, but rather in the power and inward strengthening of the Holy Spirit. It is God's power that causes men to stand, and God's power also that enables weak men like ourselves to boldly proclaim the gospel, even when there are so many in the world who both hate and despise it. Consider as well that the reason men are persecuted for proclaiming the truth is because those who prefer the freedom to sin do not want to be ruled by God. Thus, the greatest persecutors of faith are those who most despise heavenly government. Ultimately then, it will be those who cherish the right to sin that hate spiritual authority. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 now. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanliness, nor in guile. Here Paul states what his ministry was not, motivated by either deceit, nor uncleanness, nor guile. The apostles' real reason for ministry lay in the inward and sincere belief that the gospel would produce fruit in those who believed it. This is the intent of all true ministries, as they desire nothing more than men believe the truth solely for men's own benefit. Observe as well that only those who are pure in heart will be able to claim that there is no deceptiveness in their preaching. Because the apostles' motives were undefiled, they could openly encourage the Thessalonians to inspect their motives. In short, the apostles openly invited men to, in business terms, look at their books. Simply because they had nothing to hide and desired that all men might know it. Verse 4 now. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. It is not a right, but a privilege, to be allowed by God to be put in trust with the gospel. All servants of God also serve at the Lord's discretion and can be as easily removed from their divine appointment as they were given it. Adding to this is the fact that when men have been allowed by God to be trusted with the gospel, their sole loyalty and allegiance will remain with him. He then who is called to serve the Lord therefore cannot and will not seek to please man. To do so would endanger his own godly designation. Understanding this, it is impostors and not true ministers whose main object is to please the people they oversee. No man also is more open to corruption than he who instead of remaining faithful to the Lord complies with the wishes and desires of sinful men. This is clearly seen in the Old Testament figure, Aaron, who, through the persuasion of rebellious Israel, 
assisted them in making an idol to worship. Because Aaron lacked sufficient spiritual character, he was compromised in his leadership position. This record also teaches that no man can remain true to God if he can be compromised by human pressure, whether it comes from within himself or from people outside of him. One of the means also by which God's people can be deceived is through the use of good words and fair speeches, because also good words and fair speeches can be used to stroke people's ego. Those of weak character can be influenced by personal praise. Yet, just because a man possesses good words does not mean he serves the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Romans chapter 16, verse 18, we read, For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Barnes on this verse, serve not, obey not. Though they are professedly, yet they are not his real friends and followers, but their own belly, their own lusts, their own private interests. They do this to obtain support. The authors of parties and divisions in church and state have this usually in view. It is for the indulgence of some earthly appetite to obtain function or property or to gratify the love of dominion. And by good words, mild, fair, plausible speeches with an appearance of great sincerity and regard for the truth. People who cause divisions commonly make great pretensions to a peculiar love of the truth and orthodoxy and put on the appearance of great sincerity, sanctity, and humility. And fair speeches, eulogy, praise, flattery. This is another very common art. Flattery is one of the most powerful means of forming parties in the church. And a little special attention or promise of an office or commendation for talents or acquirements will secure many to the purposes of party whom have no regard for truth or orthodoxy could influence them a moment. Deceive the hearts of the simple, the minds of the unsuspecting, or those who are without guile. The apostle means to designate those who are simple-hearted without any disposition to deceive others themselves, and of course, without any suspicions of the designs of others. He has thus drawn the art of making parties with the hand of a master. First, there are smooth, plausible pretenses, as of great love for the truth. Then, an artful mingling of attentions and flatteries. And all this practice on the minds of unsuspecting, drawing their hearts and affections towards themselves. Happy would it be if this heart had been confined to its own times. Whenever then men secretly desire the praise of man, they will speak those things pleasing to them. And this speech will never, though it may contain selected inferences of the truth, ever really be the truth. Simply because those who speak of things purposed to please the hearer have as their main and great object gaining something for themselves. Verse 5 now. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. The main characteristic 
of deceiving the simple is through the use of flattery. The Greek word is defined by Strong's as speaking those things with a view to advantage or gain. Practically speaking, fraudulent ministries will use flattery in order to exalt themselves in Christ's church. Ultimately, also to positions of leadership, never endorsed by Christ. Hence, men will deceive people by speaking good things solely for the purpose of trying to gain more spiritual importance and influence in Christ's true body. Corrupt men also seeking, by the use of flattery, positions in Christ's assembly, which the Lord would never have given them on his own. So that when men do not possess spiritual power in ministry, they will often resort to flattery in seeking to gain more religious influence for themselves. Barnes on this verse. The word rendered here, flattering, cochleus, occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. The meaning is that the apostle did not deal in the language of adulation. He did not praise them for their beauty, wealth, talent, or accomplishments, and conceal from them the painful truths about their guilt and danger. He stated simple truth, not refusing to commend people if truth would admit of it, and never hesitating to declare his honest convictions about their guilt and danger. One of the principal arts of the deceiver on all subjects is flattery. And Paul says that when preaching to the Thessalonians, he had carefully avoided it. He now appeals to the fact as a proof of his own integrity, end quote. Another point that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy make mention of is the fact that they had not in any way in their preaching, use the ministerial office given to them by the Lord in order to pursue material or financial gain. This dishonest practice was no doubt prevalent in Paul's time, even as it is common in ours. When men will hijack and unlawfully seize God's word with the primary purpose of gaining material wealth for themselves. Covetous men, abusing the gospel, to fulfill their own desire for worldly riches. Sinful men also, who will invent corrupt doctrines solely for the purpose of increasing their own religious standing. This will include deceiving people to believe that they possess extraordinary spiritual powers when it is evident that they surely do not, or by bringing in false prophecies of future abundance, hence by promises of spiritual gifts, as well as speaking lives of future blessings, God's people are routinely deceived to believe non-truths. And all this is done through the subtle yet effective art of flattery, which those who are impure in their service for Christ use to make merchandise of God's people. Lastly, when men are actually sincere in their holding forth the word of the Lord, they can call upon God as a witness to their spiritual genuineness, knowing that God will confirm through the Holy Spirit as that which is being spoken has its origin in God. Those also who are sincere in the faith will not hesitate to call upon God for a confirmation that they are indeed God's own and have been sent by Him. Hence, true ministers of the Lord will not hesitate in entreating the Lord to confirm who they really are, and that God is with them and not with those who only use his name. 
This is seen in Elijah and the prophets of Baal, Moses with Korah, and even our Lord Jesus Christ, whereby both Christ's earthly life and his spiritual resurrection from the dead proved that what he had spoken openly in the world had its source in God. The Lord Jesus also affirmed that not only did he bear witness to being sent from God, but also that God had borne witness to him that Jesus was the Son of God. John 8, 18, we read, I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. In regards to Christians, the Lord will also confirm their heavenly standing by their being given the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is therefore both a witness and a testimony that people have both believed and obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remembering also that God will never impart His divine nature to those disobedient to the truth. Thus, only when the Holy Spirit is given to a man can we know that he has actually become obedient to God's Son. Absent which, though many will claim that they believe, the lack of the Holy Spirit given to them proves otherwise. Hence, none shall receive the Spirit except those who have proven themselves obedient to Christ. Ultimately, receiving the Spirit from God is actually a witness to a man obeying the Son of God. And in Acts 5.32 we read, And we are His witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey Him. It is the Lord who truly knows a man or woman's heart. And this is why not until people are given the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit can we know that they have become willing to forsake self-governorship and have instead freely chosen Jesus Christ as Lord of their life. Thus, only those who are subject to the Son of God will be given as a witness to their obedience the gift of the Holy Spirit. By God's Spirit, we can know all who have obeyed the gospel and all who have not. And like with all things that are spiritually genuine, God will bear testimony that a man or woman has become a son of God when also they are given the Spirit of God. Hence, Paul could call upon God as his witness, knowing that God would confirm in the Thessalonians the genuineness of his own ministry. By also appealing to the Lord for confirmation, the apostle could appeal to no greater power. For who better to confirm that men are pure Christians than he who makes them Christians? Amen.